Uh, our reading this morning from Acts chapter 2 is one of my favorite uh, passages of Scripture. Um, uh, if you've read through the book of Acts, it's just a great book and lots of exciting things taking place. Uh, but Acts 2 is where uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and all this stuff happens. We're going to explore that in a moment. Uh, but out of, out, of, out of all that God did, um, there's this one little, uh, what we call it, like a summary paragraph of what the church was like. And, uh, and it just, in, in a few short verses, it paints a picture of a church, which I, I find really inspiring. Um, and probably, uh, sadly, I find it's probably also something I've never really experienced myself. Not, not, not fully, but I would love to experience now. Experience it, but having said that, um, what, what I want to do today is look at the church. What it, what is the church, and uh, what's God's intention for the church? Uh, of course, we could take months and months and months to look at that, and I don't want to do that. I just want to look at one particular aspect of it from Acts chapter two. The temptation when you're talking about the church is always to talk about it from a fairly uh, critical point of view, and um, and I don't want to do that either. I I remember when I was much younger, um, would have been early 20s, I was living in Adelaide at the time, and I was part of a fairly large church there and, and part of the youth group, and they had a habit in this youth group, and the youth group was, I don't know, I think it was about 500 kids, it was a fairly large group, they had a habit of telling you what the title for next week's sermon was the week before. So they would do the whole service, and they would say, the title for next week's sermon is this, and so you'd have the whole week to think about the title and come back and, and hear it. So if you heard my title, The Church God Sends Doctrine, you may or may not come back next week because it isn't exactly the most inspiring title you've ever heard. Um, but I remember one week being at this service and they'd done a little preaching and they were always really creative and used lots of drama and whatever. And, uh, and he said, okay, next week come back because the title for next week's sermon is, Is God's Wife an Old Bag? <laughs> and I was like, oh, Intriguing. Okay, and even I wanted to come back the next week. Um, and so it was just a brilliant title, and it had me thinking all week, what the heck is that about? What's he going to talk about? So the next week we get there, and, uh, and, and the service begins, and they have they start off with a little drama up on the stage, and uh, kind of on left side of the stage, there's about four or five kind of couples and, and fellas just sitting around kind of chatting, kind of a, a, um, just your average kind of social group. And, uh, and another couple kind of walks in on the other side, and they kind of sit in on this side of the stage. And you can hear the conversation going on here. And it's along the lines of, oh, there's you know, John and Mary. They've, they've just uh, come in. Isn't, isn't Mary ugly? And they're just talking amongst themselves. So, so Mary can't hear the conversation, and John can't hear it. But isn't Mary ugly? I don't know how John married such an ugly woman. Oh, she's just that's horrible. And they're going on about it. And you're sitting there thinking, oh, that's just awful. I mean, why, why would you do that? And, um, and so they finish their little drama and make the point that we don't, well, we shouldn't, shouldn't sit around talking about somebody else's wife like that. You just, that's not something you do. Um, uh, you know, more often than not, you're talking about their husband. You know, had, had a good looking woman like that marry a bloke like that. Um, but, but it's kind of, it makes you feel awkward, kind of uncomfortable. And so with, with that kind of thought, the preacher gets up and starts talking about, well, the, the title for this week's sermon is, Is God's Wife an Old Bag? And, and his point, of course, being is how do we talk about the church? How do we talk about what the, what the, the New Testament um, talks about, the bride of Christ? 
And, and um, I don't know about for anybody else, but man, I sat there going, whoa, that's, that's good. I haven't really thought about that before. And um, being fairly cynical by nature, and, and, and I can be quite critical, uh, it really challenged me to think, well, how do I talk about the church? Uh, because the way that I talk about the church, I'm really talking about Jesus. I'm talking about the body of Christ. And, um, and so it stuck with me. I mean, that's probably the only sermon title I have remembered in my whole life. And I've heard thousands of them and preached enough myself. And I don't remember many of their titles either. But I remember that one because it, it, it's such a powerful message. And so all that's to say is what I don't want to do this morning is stand up here and say, this is where the church doesn't measure up. Okay? It's not to criticize the church. It's just to say... There's this great picture of a church in Acts chapter 2, the very first church, and it's always good to go back to the beginning, that I find really challenging and inspiring, and I wonder what we can learn from it. I wonder what we can learn from their little experience that will help us in our own life. Okay, let's just flick through some screens here. Um, In our reading this morning, and maybe I'll just read uh, part of it again, um, and uh, just to refresh our memories. Okay, so this is uh, Acts chapter 2, last paragraph. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their houses, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Yeah, it's a great picture, isn't it? Um, I, I don't know how you feel, but I kind of read the bit about selling all their possessions and it makes me a little nervous. But, uh, but it is an amazing picture of community. And, uh, and of people who just really do love each other and, and are willing to do whatever it takes to be um, the people that, that Jesus would want them to be. So just a couple of um, uh, observations, I guess, from the text that I think are helpful. Um, things that we notice about them, and if you read through the whole chapter and all, indeed all of the New Testament, you'll notice this, is that uh, really um, the, the community life centered around baptism and communion. So uh, the sacraments, we would refer to it in a more formal setting. But, but, but that, that, that really was this, this, this kind of the center point of everything that they did. They, they shared the, the blood and, and the body of Christ together. They, they had communion together, whether it was uh, in their houses or in other groups. It didn't really matter. That, that seemed to be at the heart of who they were as people. Of course, baptism played, played a massive part. Uh, in the community as well. People heard the gospel, they were saved, they were baptized, and they were kind of birthed into this community, um, which was a huge thing. It says they were taught the word of God together, so they listened to the apostles' teaching, and, and that was an important part of their life together, was the word of God and learning the word of God. Uh, they prayed and praised together, so it was that sense of corporate prayer and corporate praise, uh, which... which uh, you. Although probably we, we try and do it in various, at various times and contexts, um, you can't deny that, that corporate praise and corporate worship and corporate prayer was very much part of the early church. That's something they practiced together. Um, they gathered together in large groups and in small groups, in homes, in the temple, wherever it seemed appropriate, and they ate together. Uh, and I think we'd probably just say they did life together. That's our, prob- our way of saying it. But that, that for them, eating together was a huge part of their life together. How would you describe them? Well... Uh, just from that passage alone, you would say they were humble and generous. I mean, they were humble enough to be able and generous enough to be able to sell 
any extra that they had to give to anybody who had need. Um, they lived as a true family. Um, one of the uh, things, and we, we don't really get this in, in today's culture, but what they would do, if there was a family like Jesus' family, for example, his father, um, or earthly father at least, Joseph, was a carpenter. And so Joseph may work with a couple of his brothers or, or uncles or cousins or whatever. They'd have the family business and they'd live from a common purse. So the business would provide a certain amount of money. It would all go into one jar and everybody would live out of that one jar. So there's no kind of personal, oh, this is my savings, that's your savings, this is their savings. Everybody lived from a common purse, and that was a normal way that families would live together. And, um, and so the picture it paints in Acts is that the church began to do that. They began to live together. They, they, yes, they had their own things, but they didn't consider it just their own. It was, it was to be used by everybody um, as everybody had need. Uh, it says that they were full of joy uh, and sincerity. Okay, and, and just the language that it uses in different versions is, is quite interesting, you know. Um, it talks about this, the, just the genuineness of their own hearts and the way that they worshipped and the way that they gave to one another. But certainly there was a sense of joy in all that they did. Uh, it says that they had a sense of awe at God's work amongst them. Um, and, you know, and it kind of begins with that. They, and they were in awe of what God was doing amongst them. Uh, that's a huge challenge for me. I don't know about you. And maybe in preaching this morning, I just want to, You'll just hear what I'm challenged by. Maybe it'll challenge you as well. But, but how, how much am I in awe of what God's doing amongst us? Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Mind you, if God uh, added 3,000 to the church in one day, I'd be in awe. I'd be a little nervous as well. Uh, but, but, you know, they, they were in awe of what God was doing. The apostles were going around and they were, they were seeing people get healed. Um, they were seeing people, their lives change. They are seeing this massive thing take place. But, you know... Uh, and I've been in groups that are like this, where, where God is just so active and there's, and there's just stuff happening, and, and you're just in awe of what God is doing amongst you. Okay? What, a, what a great description of a church, a bunch of people in awe of what God was doing amongst them. And it says that they were attractive to outsiders, so they had favor with all of the people. And, of course, that changes a little bit later on. They didn't have favor with everybody, of course, because persecution came in. But yet there was something about the work of God amongst them that was attractive to the community that they lived in. Okay. Uh, again, I find that challenging. You know, what about the church that I belong to is attractive to people who live around us? Okay, so that, that's, what God, that's what was going on. So what was God doing amongst them? Well, it tells us that there was many wonders and miraculous signs were happening. Um, maybe what's really challenging about this passage is it actually says the apostles were doing these things. It doesn't say God was doing this. It says the apostles did this. Uh, so they were going around praying for people and seeing people get healed and delivered and all kinds of stuff. Um, but, but of course we know, you know, God's behind that. So God, God was active amongst them. There was, there was real life manifestations of the work of God amongst them. It wasn't just theoretical. Um, it wasn't just something they, they hoped and dreamed. It was something they actually experienced. Um, and it says that God was adding to their number daily. All right. That's a quick summary of what was going on. But what makes a group of people suddenly be like that? I don't know about you, but it's easy to, to kind of read over that and go, wow, that's so cool, that's so amazing, this church is so kind of funky and cool and everybody loves them and God's doing all this stuff and they're, and they're actually selling all their possessions and giving to everybody. But, it, but I found myself recently just kind of considering why. What happened amongst them that make them do that? Because they weren't like that before. So why did they suddenly change from being what they were as just regular Jewish people going off to the synagogue, uh, however many times they did that a week, 
to being people who live like that? What happened? Uh, because I think if God wants to shape us the way that he does, it's not about having a theory of church. It's not about having a doctrine of church necessarily or having some kind of constitution. All those things might be really important. Church is actually just is, is a response to what God does. Church is a response to our understanding, I guess, of what God has done. And so um, what I want to do is just explore now for a moment, well, what actually happened to cause them to live like that? Because I think uh, it'll help us to start going, God, I want that same thing for myself. That's the revelation that I want to have. So we'll just follow through, through um, a few thoughts here. Okay, Acts chapter 1. Um, you know the story. Jesus is still on the scene. He hasn't ascended to heaven yet. And, and he comes to them, and it's a fascinating uh, little passage. Um, and and uh, I'm sure you've heard it. Acts chapter 1, at, um, I'll start from verse uh, 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he gives them this promise and he says, just hang around here in Jerusalem and I'm going to come and fill you with the Holy Spirit. Now, they probably had no idea what that meant, but Jesus said it, so it was probably worth taking note of. Okay, then verse 6. So when they had met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, and it gives us a little glimpse as to what's going on in their hearts. So uh, they're, they're Jewish guys, and their understanding is still that this Messiah was going to come and deliver Israel from the tyranny of the Romans. And, and once again, they would have this great kingdom where all the world would come to this kingdom and fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies. And Jerusalem would once again be this amazing place where everybody would come and everything would be great. That, that's, that's what they had in their mind. That's what the Messiah would do in their understanding of the Old Testament prophecies. And so even after Jesus has died and all hope was lost and then he rises again from the dead and all hope is restored, they're still not quite sure what they're actually hoping for. Okay, but there's this sense of something's going on because he's alive and he wasn't a few days ago. And so they come to him and say, is this the time where you're going to come into Jerusalem, get rid of the Romans and make it everything that it should be? Okay, and Jesus does what he always does is he doesn't answer their question directly, but the implications of his answer are far more powerful than they had even imagined. Okay, so he says to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so they're saying, okay, Jesus, are you now going to set yourself up as the king of Israel? That's their question. Okay, and Jesus says, well, that's up to the Father. All of that, what happens, end time stuff, that's all up to the Father. But, but I'm going to answer your question anyway. Wait here and the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and then what? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so what's he saying? Okay, just to, to summarize it without going into too much detail, he's basically saying to them, well, yes, I am going to become king. Because in, in, the, old, in, that, that, in the Roman Empire, what would happen is when a, when a new king came on the throne, there's a new Caesar or king or whatever you want to call him, comes on the throne, they would send out envoys or witnesses all over the empire to say, Good news, good news, good news. There's a new king on the throne. 
Okay. Nero's on the throne. Good news. Everybody rejoice. Woo, we love Nero. Okay. That, that's basically what would take place. And maybe before they knew Nero, that, that would be their response. Okay. That, that's how it worked. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, when they said, are you going to become king of Israel now? He goes, well, not quite the way you imagine, but I am going to be king and you're going to go throughout all of the empire and you're going to proclaim that good news that I'm the king. Now, you kind of see where he's getting at, okay? And, and that's all going to be in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, yes, I am a king of a whole new kingdom and it's not just about Israel, it's actually about the whole earth, all the world. So he gives them that command and so they wait, okay? And then we get into Acts chapter 2 and uh, there they are in, in, in Jerusalem. This is 50 days after Jesus' death and, and resurrection. Okay, and they're waiting there and they're praying together. And suddenly the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began speaking in tongues and began speaking in languages that people understood. And all this kind of wild stuff happened that you would never imagine would happen on an average Jerusalem street in the middle of Pentecost. Okay? So much so, so wild was it that people came and said, well, maybe they're drunk. Maybe they drank too much wine. And... I mean, have you ever heard a drunk person speaking another language that they didn't learn? You know, it's kind of weird, but that they didn't know how to explain it. And so Peter gets up and he begins, um, he begins to preach the first ever truly got, like gospel message of the New Testament era. And it's a fascinating message that he preaches. And um, so we'll just have a bit of a look at it. Uh, th- this is basically how it goes. And we don't have time to read it all, but if you have time later, go through and read it because it's definitely worth a read. He says, this is the last days, okay, and this is the evidence. So he quotes from the prophet Joel, and Joel talks about in the last days, young men will prophesy and all of this. He says, this is the last days, basically. Joel's prophecy is coming to pass, okay, and and he goes on and talks about that a little bit more. Okay, then he goes on, men of Israel, verse 22, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. In other words, this Jesus whom you just killed He's God's man on earth, and the proof is that he did all these miracles. He raised people from the dead. He healed them. He delivered them. He did all of this stuff um, to them. Okay, but but you you killed him. Okay, now he's taken a few risks there, but he kind of points the finger and says, "But you killed him." Okay, and then he says this most amazing thing: "But God raised him from the dead." And let me throw this in here: the New Testament is all about the resurrection. Okay, yes, it is about the death of Jesus. And, and the forgiveness of sins. But, but the heart of the New Testament is not actually death and, and, and forgiveness of sins, although that's a, big, that's a big part of it. The heart of it is actually the resurrection because that's what makes all the difference. And we'll come back to this in a sec. Okay, but God raised him from the dead. And then he goes on, he talks about the prophecies of David, how David, King David, who they all knew, he prophesied about this guy who was going to die and come back to life. And, and Peter says, well, what, David wasn't talking about himself because he's still dead. He was talking about Jesus and Jesus has definitely come back to life. And then he says, without saying it, he doesn't say it to us, he doesn't say it explicitly, it's implied, but he says, this Jesus is the descendant of David who will be on the throne forever. In other words, this, this Jesus is the king that you've been waiting for all of this time. Um, and then he, and he finishes with this really powerful statement in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that this God has made this Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when you and I read this particular message, we probably go, okay, what's the big deal? Okay, no. If we're honest about it, we go, okay, that's a good message, but Joel and David, for crying out loud, where does that, 
fit in. And we read it and go, what's the big deal? Okay. Well, when they heard this message, they went, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Okay. You kind of see a bit of a problem here. Yeah. Okay. So you and I hear that message and we go, okay, cool. They heard that message and go, oh, crap. What, what, what can we do? How can we respond? They were cut to the heart. Okay. So what's, what is actually going on? And, and, and this actually gets to the heart of it. See, when Jesus was doing his ministry and you read through, you read through the gospels and you'll notice this, Luke especially, the, the closer Jesus gets to the end of his life, the harsher the warnings about this generation. Okay. You, you, you read it. You notice it. He keeps warning them, especially in Jerusalem. He warns them about judgment that's coming. He warns them that they can't continue on like this. He warns them about this generation. And, uh, and, and he just warns them over and over and over again. Okay, about, about what's going to happen. There's a bunch of prophecies in there and he talks about how, you know, very apocalyptic type language where there's going to be, you know, utter chaos and all this kind of rubbish is going to take place. Okay, and we sometimes read it and I think misunderstand it and think it's talking about the end times. Okay, and there might be a part of that in it, but he's talking about how in that generation is going to come to an end. And of course we know in AD 70, so about 30 or 40 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed. By the Babylonians, and that's what Jesus was talking about. So, Jesus warns them: there's something happening, and it's not good. This generation is in serious trouble. Okay, so let me try and paint the picture for you to try and um, get a sense of what, why they responded the way that they did. Jesus comes on the scene, okay, and he begins talking about what the gospel. Is that what he preached, the gospel? No, it's not. He preached the kingdom. Okay? And the kingdom is the gospel. The kingdom is the good news. Okay? It says Jesus began his ministry by preaching the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near. Okay? And the kingdom is the good news. Okay? And so he begins preaching that, and at the same time, he's healing, he's raising people from the dead, he's delivering people, he's out there amongst the people, and he's doing something different, he's speaking with authority, he's gathering these people around him, and he's beginning to tell them that you're going to go and do the same thing. Okay? In their minds, they're still expecting a physical king to take over the throne in Jerusalem, but it doesn't happen. Jesus goes to, to, to Jerusalem, and they, and they nail him to a cross, and they kill him. And all the disciples are like, what? What is going on? This is not what we expected. Okay, Jesus is dead. Their hopes are dashed. The whole plan's gone south. What are we doing? But three days later, Jesus rises from the dead, and they can't believe it. What's going on? This is crazy. I mean, you think you've had a few ups and downs in your life. Okay, this must have been just uh, you know emotional chaos for the disciples. But but suddenly this Jesus is alive, and they're really not quite sure what's going on because he he's alive. He's the same Jesus. He looks the same. He sounds the same. He's got the scars and everything, but yet he's not the same because he can walk through walls and do all kinds of weird stuff that he couldn't do before. Okay, this is all going on in their mind. Then Jesus says to them, "Wait here in Jerusalem. The Spirit is going to come upon you, and you're going to go forth and proclaim." that I'm the king to all the nations of the earth. They still didn't understand it. And here's the thing. They didn't understand it until when? Until the Holy Spirit came upon them. Okay? So the Holy Spirit comes upon them and suddenly 
they understand. Now, it's interesting, you know, what happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? The Holy Spirit came upon him. He goes out into the wilderness and he's launched into uh, his ministry. So what happens to the church? Not really sure what's going on. Holy Spirit comes upon them and what? They're launched into ministry. Okay, so the church has been given everything that they need to continue the work that Jesus started on earth. Okay, Jesus ascends to heaven. They're left wondering. The Holy Spirit comes and all of a sudden it all makes sense to them. Okay, and and we can kind of see by the way Peter says what he says in the next couple of verses. Okay, um, okay, verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, saying what? Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Okay. Hopefully I haven't confused you yet, but here's, here's the thing. Why, why were they cut to the heart? Why did they respond the way they did, and why did it turn into them being a community like that? Because they understood, they, they got this revelation, I think, from Peter's preaching that they were living in a corrupt and dying generation that had no hope. But there's a king who gave them hope because he overcame the corruption and the death of their old community, and that king's Jesus. And what's the evidence of that? He rose from the dead. He's not dead anymore. He's alive. The resurrection power is at work in him. You see, ever since Genesis chapter 3, when sin came into the world, what has reigned? Death and sin has reigned. Okay? But since Jesus came and he overcame sin and death, he now reigns, and there's a whole new kingdom. And so in their own minds, there's, there's this revelation that's taken place. Suddenly, they realize there's an alternative. Okay? It's not all about the restoration of Israel, although Israel may well still have a part in what God is doing. But actually, that's not the heart of what God is doing. What God is doing is establishing a whole new kingdom with a whole new king, and it's a kingdom of hope. It's a kingdom that is not under the power of death. It's not under the power of sin. It's a kingdom where people are healed and people are restored and, and lives change. It's a kingdom um, like heaven, which was Jesus' message the whole time. You, you kind of, you're tracking with me? I'm, I'm kind of just rambling a little bit. Okay. But, but see, I, I, think that's, I think that's the thing. When, if we don't really understand that we have been saved from a corrupt generation into a whole new generation or a corrupt community into a whole new community, our lifestyle won't change. Why would it? If we think we've just been forgiven of our sin and we're going to go to heaven one day when either when we die or Jesus comes back, we're going to get out of this awful body and this mess of a planet and finally go and live with Jesus somewhere where it's really cool, okay, then why would, why would we change our life? But if we understand what Jesus actually, the message of Jesus, and his message was the kingdom of heaven is here. In other words, heaven has come down and touched earth. And God's plan to restore his creation and bring it back to what he originally intended it to be has begun. Okay? And sure, there's an overlap between this, this corrupt generation and the kingdom of God, but we don't have to live in that corrupt generation anymore because there's a new king and a new kingdom. And you know what? 
If we truly believe that and have that revelation that we live in a whole new kingdom, a new generation, our lifestyle would be completely different. It just would be. You know, I think we would, I think the kind of community they were, they were not that because Paul, well, he wasn't around yet. They weren't like that because Peter and John stood up and said, hey, because this is what God has done, we now have to have this, 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 and this, and this is how we should structure our church. They did bring structure in as time went by. That was just their response to what Jesus had done. We're in a whole new kingdom with a whole new king, and this is a kingdom of hope where death and sin no longer have victory over us. So why wouldn't we share all that we have with those who have need? Why wouldn't we be in awe of what God is doing? Why wouldn't we live as a community full of hope because we have a new king who's full of hope? You kind of get the, the heart of it. Um, and, and I think uh, I probably can't really preach it and tell you, make it, I can't make it revelation. It comes by the Holy Spirit. But, but you know what? My prayer is that we get this revelation of, of a revelation of church is not a revelation of a structure. It's a revelation of this amazing kingdom that we've been born into. That, that, that's actually what it is. Okay? And getting into a small group or giving to those who have need or sharing communion together or baptizing people or being in awe of what God is doing or taking note of the apostles' teaching, that is just our response to this amazing thing that our king has done and brought us into this kingdom full of hope and full of life. He's begun to reverse what sin uh, brought into the people. You know, the, the church is, and N.T. Wright, in a lot of his writings, he, he says it so much better than I ever could, but he talks about the church are the resurrection people or the exodus people. They're people who have been taken out of slavery and into the promised land. And that's who we are. Now, you may sit here thinking, well, I'm Australian. I'm whatever other culture you might be. But not first. that's not your first allegiance. Your first allegiance is Jesus. Is the kingdom of heaven, um, and, and that's that's where our, our, our identity primarily comes from. Um, you know, it's no wonder they were filled with joy and awe at what what Jesus had done. Okay, let me just throw up a few more thoughts, and then I'll finish. Okay, so how do they respond? Well, repent. Okay, and I think you've talked about that recently. Repent, and it's not just repent of one-off sins, like oh, I did something bad yesterday. I repent. It's repent from a life. It's turn from one king to another king. Okay, that's what we're doing. Turn from one worshipping one being to worshipping another, whether it's worshipping yourself or worshipping your car or your money or whatever, to worshipping Jesus. That's what repentance is. Be baptised. In other words, die to slavery and corruption and become alive to Jesus, which means part of his body, part of the church, and receive the Holy Spirit. So what's Jesus' role in the church? He's the head of the church. He plants the church. Okay, and on your notes there's the actual references you can get this from. Okay, he's the leader who builds the church. He's the chief shepherd. He's present with the church, and he will judge the church. Okay, you know what I love about that? It takes the pressure off us. Okay, we don't have to do all of those things. That's Jesus' job. He will build his church. He will shepherd his church. He'll be present with us. He plants it. He causes it to grow. We have a role to play, but just out of obedience to who he is. As he speaks, we obey and do what he says, okay? And, and he builds his church. What were his instructions, okay? And this is, um, this is probably at the heart of it because this is who church is. What were his instructions to the church? Okay, Matthew 16, okay, while he's still alive, he says this, I tell you, okay, talking to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, okay? 
So he begins with this thought. He's going to build it. It's his church. In the end of Matthew, after his death, he says, well, sorry, after his resurrection, he says this. Okay, this is the Great Commission. Okay, go and make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So immediately Jesus gives the church this command to go. Okay, and then in Acts 1.8, we've already read it. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem, get the Holy Spirit, then go, be my witnesses. Okay, in uh, John 17, we, we looked at this a, f- uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, he's speaking to the Father, he says, so I have sent them into the world. Um, again, at the end of John, John 20, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Okay, the thing is, the church is not static. Okay, this community is a growing community in Acts. It's always growing. God's always adding to their number. They're always being sent out. It's, it's, it, it's just like that. And so when, when we kind of think about, well, what is church, this first church? It's a group of people who are responding to, to, to the kingdom of God, responding to what Jesus has done, whose allegiance has changed from their previous allegiances to whatever king they had to King Jesus. Okay? And out of that flows a huge amount of hope and joy and expectation and experience of God amongst them. Okay? But it doesn't just stay like that. It's always looking out, always pushing on. It's always Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. It's always going to all the nations. It's always growing because God's kingdom is one that doesn't have boundaries. It, it's, it's, not a, it's not a political or geographical kingdom. Okay? It's a kingdom that will include all people. Okay, just two thoughts to finish. Um, and there's other things too, but I just want to single these two things out. Um, there's two, two things that are always associated with the church in the New Testament. And, and this is just interesting. Um, and hopefully will make us ask questions of our own experience of church. Um, there's always healing. Always. Okay? When, when you look at any expression of the church in the New Testament, there's always healing taking place. People being healed. People being delivered. Um, and, and I think that should be a, a, a characteristic of all church, that it's people who bring healing. Emotional healing, physical healing, spiritual healing, whatever type of healing. Healing is at the heart of the church. Why? Because Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, pray this, um, uh, as it do on earth as it is in heaven. Okay? So what's in heaven? Healing. No sickness, no pain. Okay? And so we should be seeing on earth what's in heaven. Healing. I just think it's one of those characteristics that we should always see. And the other thing is, not so nice, um, but persecution. Okay, all through the New Testament, there's persecution associated with being the church. Okay, um, always. And actually, the persecution was probably the main catalyst for church growth. Certainly in Acts, that was the thing that pushed them out. And uh, again, I probably do, I do think if we want to say, let's be church like New Testament church, then we have to include persecution in that. It's not that we go out and make it happen, um, although we could arrange something between different churches. But, um, uh, you know, but, but there should be an expectation that if we're not living at least dangerously enough to be persecuted, are we really responding to the kingdom of heaven? I don't, I don't really like that, but it is what it says, so I think we need to be true to it. Um, so, yeah, that's my little thought on church this morning.
Uh, and, and hopefully it builds on what you've already been doing. But, but to be honest, it's just a few, a few of my own musings and thoughts as I've been studying and looking at this passage and the response of the people. And in my own heart, and I trust in yours as well, there's, there's a desire to, to, to not just to be like that, but a desire for my life to be lived out as a response to the kingdom of heaven. This new kingdom that I'm part of, this new king that I have, and all that that means, which is we could go on about for a long time, but I won't. Let me pray, and then I'll hand over to Nathan. Father, thank you that, um, I just thank you that you are king. Jesus, thank you that, that, that you're the king, that you are seated at the right hand of the Father, and that, that you're king. I thank you that, uh, even though that language sometimes is hard for us to understand with our modern ways of doing things, and we don't really live in kingdoms anymore, uh, but there is a sense um, that, that your kingdom has come and, and, and th- everything has changed. Since your resurrection, everything has changed because what uh, ruled up until that point no longer rules. You rule. And Lord, I thank you that we can, we can respond to your kingdom by repenting, by being baptized into your kingdom. And, uh, and Lord, there's something I think that when we get a full revelation of that, it changes the way that we live. It changes the way we do community. It changes the way we're willing to sacrifice and lay down our life and, and give or willing to take risks and, and, and to take the good news to other places. Our expectation for healings to take place and deliverance and freedom uh, for people. So, Lord, just help us. God, we're, just, we're all just searching for and looking for, um, just, yeah, looking for opportunity to, to bring your kingdom, to be part of your kingdom. And to see your kingdom make a difference, whether it's in Highfields or Toowoomba or, or wherever it might be. God, just help us to be your kingdom people like they were in Acts chapter 2. Thank you, Father.